Hello and welcome to Beyond Borders, your fortnightly podcast from Cambridge Refugee Scholarship Campaign. Here, we make the human case for widening higher education to refugees around the world, speaking to guests, hearing lived experiences and highlighting current events. This podcast explores the barriers that refugees face to higher education and asks how we can overcome them. And welcome to this week's episode entitled Living Beyond Borders, where we're going to talk to two guests about just what it's like to be a refugee student living beyond and between the borders that our world has set out for them. Now, when I talk about beyond or between borders, I'm talking about the spaces that refugees are given in our world to live in, and that often includes refugee camps. Uh, We know a little bit about refugee camps from the little bit of information that gets to us uh, through mainstream media. I'm going to talk to Tiggs, who is our community officer at Cambridge Refugee Scholarship Campaign, about her experiences working as a volunteer in a refugee camp in Greece. Um, and just so we can ask a little bit more about what kind of a setting that is for a refugee student. Um, afterwards, we're going to be talking to Ias Adi, live from Berlin, uh, who is a refugee working for a organisation called Refugee Voices Tours Berlin. And ES is going to talk to us a little bit about his experiences living between European countries over his life and the impact that those transitions have had on his experiences as a student and as someone in employment. This should also help us talk a little bit about Germany's refugee policy in comparison to other countries and about Germany's so-called welcome culture, or Willkommenskultur in German, which essentially refers to the culture of welcoming that has defined, supposedly, Germany's attitude towards refugees in the past few years. So we'll talk a little bit about ES's experiences living as a refugee in that country over the past few years. First of all, um, a quick content warning about my discussion with Tiggs. There's very brief mention of suicide in our discussion of the ongoing Napier barracks scandal in Kent. For those of you who don't know, I'll uh, do a quick roundup now. In Kent currently, um, there are a number of former military barracks where asylum seekers seeking asylum in Britain have been sent. Uh, now, currently, the coronavirus is, is presenting a host of issues uh, to the asylum process, and uh, very many um, asylum seekers are not getting their claims process at all. And in the meantime, they have been, or a large number of them, especially um, especially younger single men, have been put in these army barracks outside of London. We're going to talk a little bit with Tiggs about what that means to be a student in particular in those environments um, and the toll and impact that living in those environments is having on refugees and asylum seekers at the moment in the United Kingdom right here. This is what Tiggs and I spoke about earlier. Hi Tiggs. Hi. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do for the campaign? Yeah, absolutely. So I've actually been with the campaign for a couple of years now. Um, Last year, I was the secretary, so just kind of doing more um, kind of minutes and organising stuff. And then I really liked what the campaign was doing. I thought it was really, really important um, that this work goes on in Cambridge, uh, which is quite an inaccessible space um, for scholars seeking sanctuary. 
Um, so I applied to be the community officer. And so what I do as community officer is basically, um, I'm a kind of point of contact for the Rowan Williams scholars, um, who are scholars who have faced some barriers to accessing education due to conflict or persecution uh, here in Cambridge. Um, and I'm just there for them to chat to. Uh, we organize events to try and just basically make the experience the most welcoming and um, kind of fulfilling one that they can have. And you've just come back from Greece, haven't you? Yes, I have, yeah. I was in Lesbos um, during January. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there? Yeah, so I was working with an NGO um, there are still, despite what you don't hear in the media, <laughs> there are still a lot of people crossing from Turkey to Lesbos um, or attempting to make the crossing. Um, and when they arrive, there is often a very slow or delayed response from Coast Guards. If they get into danger in the sea, um, the kind of same thing is there's often not a very quick response. And that can lead to a lot of problems. Um, and so we are a, a search and rescue professional team that is based on the North Shore um, and we can be called on in, in emergencies by the Coast Guard to help them um, with uh, basically keeping lives safe at sea. Um, that's been really difficult recently because um, increasingly there's quite, I, there's been a lot about this in the news, but there's been quite a lot of um, hostility from the Greek Coast Guard and generally with COVID, um, everything's been put on ice so there's a sense that nothing really moves forward or backwards um, and there is an increasingly right-wing government in Greece uh, well it's a, a quite a right-wing government um, in Greece at the moment and that has meant uh, it's harder for NGOs to operate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely and we heard a little bit last week from Zachariah about what it's like to study um, as a student in a refugee camp. Um, from your experience working in Lesbos what is that like? for a student and how did the fire in Moria last year have an impact on the prospects of students on Lesbos? Yeah so in summer I was actually working with an NGO um, that does work in the in the camps and that, at the time that was Moria um, which is quite notorious uh, for being one of the worst refugee camps in Europe um, and also Karatepe which is a, a camp for vulnerable people um, that's a lot smaller and people are selected that are particularly vulnerable that go to that camp um, and at the time, there were a lot of education in uh, initiatives um, in the recognition that uh, being forced to flee your country for whatever reason is going to impact um, education, whether that's at the primary, secondary or like tertiary level, it's going to have a huge impact on that because I think one of the most important things about education is, is consistency, you know, going to school every day for seven years um, and yeah there is there was a lot of recognition of that amongst both NGOs um, international NGOs like working in in and around the camp um, and also with amongst the the resident community themselves so there was when I was um, working in Moria I would walk through the olive groves which is like the kind of informal part of the camp that um, has kind of grown beyond the the formal reception center and I walked past so many schools um like informal schools that were set up by people who are teachers um people who are qualified teachers back in their countries and wanted to keep going and wanted to educate the the camp residents and the children um but not just children I think it's really important that you know it's not just children who want that education there's a lot of classes for example for Greek or English um, and huge age ranges of people accessing that um, and obviously 
the resources were incredibly low, but I think um, what what was most obvious was the desire to keep learning and that desire even without enough resources and without enough opportunities um, created initiatives, created informal schools, created you know uh, people actually some of the children were able to go to local Greek schools. Um, mm. So pre-fire it absolutely was not ideal in any way shape or form um, but there because it there, there, there'd kind of been a growth of these informal schools in the camp and then yeah also access um, to education provided by the NGOs outside of the camp um, with the fire it just overturned all of that hard work that had been done by camp residents um, and and some local and international staff um, and it just almost like you had to start from level one again right like ground zero and um you know that's not to say that there was no there is no education in the current camp there are education initiatives and um, that have been set up mostly by camp residents and um, but also still also by some NGOs um but it's inc- the new camp is incredibly um poorly placed number one it's it's right next to the sea um it's placed on an ex-military um I think it's a shooting range uh and so there's uh, there's been a recent report that there's actually really quite high levels of lead which can lead to lead poisoning um and it's incredibly windy unless it's in winter you know it's an island um and it really does get a lot of wind and a lot of storms and rain and recently ice and snow and the only structures in the camp our canvas they made a canvas you know it's, it's tents or it's bigger tents you know like the rub halls um that that house more people you know it's all basically canvas and it's it's incredibly difficult to set up a school um informal or not in those settings yeah. um yeah. there's very little resources but it's also just like the actual geographical setting of it for example mm. recently when i was there actually um one of the tents that had been used for a school blew away you know it literally blew away and i think that's such a i mean it's so demonstrative of of the issues that are being faced and it's not that there's a lack of desire for education it's just really really tough to implement in those conditions um it's not safe you know is that like and and whilst education is so fundamental to to i mean to human rights right um if you're worrying that your tent is going to blow away the the first priority on your mind is not always education um even if there, there is a strong like undercurrent of desire for that um, well, I, I think what that really i mean shows to the listeners and it connects to what um i talked about with zachary in our last episode is that it would be very easy to be mistaken you know that you know having an education is something that someone can just tick in a box as in you know they've either had one or they haven't but of course you know what your experience shows is that there's a whole range of fulfillments that need to be met for an education to be safe and effective um and i mean how would you describe more generally outside of just um these camps and and lesbos how do you describe more generally um how suitable refugee camps are as a space for education around the world um, I think that they are settings that are informal and the fact is that we exist, um, especially here, if, for example, in Cambridge, in a very formalised institution, right? And so if, for example, um, and, th- and there's a huge contrast between the, the formalised way that we learn um, 
I mean, here in the institution, but also here in our country and, and around the world, like education has become increasingly formalized. And so in refugee camps, there's this, it's very informal. Um, and and that, creates, and that creates a gap between... That creates a huge gap, right? And, and it's really hard to fill that gap. For example, you might have been, um, you might have your, your like kind of baccalaureate or A-level equivalent um, education from wherever you came from as a, as a um, someone like uh, as an asylum seeker or a refugee um, and you might have lost that you know you might have literally lost the certificate and to try and prove that you have it through when you're already like, like living in this very informal setting is, is really really difficult and then if you then want to leave that setting in order to pursue further education uh, it's really hard to to find the access route for that not only you know finding a university who will take your promise of education because you lost your certificate for example um but that university might not even recognize um the the qualification that you had as competitive enough as is the case here in cambridge um and then you know in a kind of more on a basic level you might not have the wi-fi uh that you need to do the ucas application process you might not have the money to get the the english qualification that you need to come to certain universities um, and obviously that that does apply i'm talking more in the lens of um moving on to tertiary education um but that informality is i think the key i think that while there are some amazing educational initiatives happening in refugee camps it's the never knowing um if that school will even be there tomorrow because it might have blown away or been washed away or the teacher might not be able to come because they've been deported you know there's just such a high level of informality i think that's the that's one of the hardest things like like we said yeah that's but there's one of the biggest gaps really um and it's, it's just yeah yeah what would you say that the european union and european governments can do to solve these problems i think that they should not support the policy of having camps um as suitable places for for refugees and asylum seekers to live um i think that camp the, like I said like the camp setting is informal it's un unstable which is not only bad for education but incredibly bad for people with mental health um so I think that camps as a as a system of um kind of uh it's basically de detention right like it's it's basically arbitrary and um unlimited detention keeping people in camps in inhumane conditions when actually seeking asylum in safety is one of like uh, the fundamental human rights enshrined in, in the UN Charter and I think that by not recognizing that by saying no no we you know I think for example the EU government says that the camps are not are not detention camps they are places from which people should be seeking asylum but the fact is the process has become so slow people are living in those places for two years and then they might at that point get rejected so for all that all that heartache or waiting all that time spent in a camp in that informalized setting um with that uncertainty you don't even have a certainty at the end of it that you might that you even get your um your claim um so i think that what the eu can do is to follow um a policy of like no more camps basically um and they should I mean, it's difficult, obviously, I'm, I'm, there are like huge difficulties with having um, basically like burden sharing mechanisms across across the EU. But I think that should be something that is pursued more as kind of part of the solidarity of, of the bloc, but also including the UK, because we were really we were really um, quite big players in making the hotspot 
um, approach, which is now implemented in the Aegean Islands, which has led to the creation of these camps. So I do think that includes the UK. Um, and I think that, yeah, asylum seekers should be able to seek asylum in different countries. So they shouldn't be held at the edges, kind of held at the borders, um, the external borders of Europe. And um, they should be able to seek asylum wherever they want in Europe. Um, as, like, is their, as is their legal, as is their legal right. As is their legal right, their legal yeah, right. contra the Dublin, the Dublin agreement. So there should also be, uh, as well as this kind of burden sharing mechanism and, and equal distribution of asylum seekers across Europe, where they can make their claims in, in safety and peace and, you know, for example, have access to education. And there should also be ways that people can seek asylum from the countries that they are in, where they're experiencing the conflict or the instability or the persecution. And that would prevent them from having to make the very expensive, uh, dangerous journeys um, that they have to, to to come to Europe. And I think that, you know, a lot of European um, discourse is about fighting the smuggler networks, for example. And unless there are safe ways, safe and legal routes um, to seek asylum, those smuggler networks will carry on. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something really important as well. Absolutely. Closer to home in the United Kingdom, um, there is a fresh crisis. Uh, which, of course, you, know, you, you mentioned that asylum, that asylum uh, processes when people are in camps take a long time to process. And, and one, uh, one consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic has, of course, been that currently in the UK, asylum processes are barely being processed at all. In the meantime, people, um, a, a large proportion of asylum seekers in the UK have been interned in former army barracks. Um, and this is something that I'll um, I'll talk about a little bit more um, after I speak to Tiggs. But in the army barracks currently, um, there are a number of asylum seekers um, who are on suicide watch because, like you mentioned, in you know detaining people in camps uh, is inhumane. Um, so could you um, I mean could you speak a little bit to the Napier scandal currently unfolding? in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's happening in Napier is um, an exact kind of mirroring of what happens in the Aegean Islands. It's this concept of um, the concept that keeping people in really, really poor conditions uh, while they kind of go through the asylum process, um, there's the idea that that will deter people from coming. Um, this is just empirically not the case and um, studies have been done to disprove that that having bad reception conditions will slow down um the flow of people it's actually just empirically not true um and it's it's shows that like a, a horrible disregard for people's rights and people's rights to exist as as more than just um Kind of on more than just a basic needs um level right like yes they have a roof over their head yes they have quite inadequate food but it is food but you know beyond that they don't have access to education they don't have access to and um, even to, to NGOs have very limited access to those camps to the Napier barracks camps which is basically I think and, they are camps um, and, and journalists have also been denied journalists from reporting it you know there, there was a yeah. story of there was a story of a photographer recently who when taking photographs of a protest um of a protest which um you know some of the uh, some of the people who had been put in the camps were making you know, against having been put in the camps, a photographer tried to take a photo of it and was then questioned for hours. Yeah. yeah by yeah. the by Again, the, that's, the camp. 
Yeah, and, and again, yeah, that's exactly what happened in Greece. You know, there is a huge hostility against journalists and NGOs, and we're just seeing the exact same thing in the UK. And um, I think it's it's utterly unacceptable. It shows a complete disregard for um, both rights and also just the complexity of lives. And, I, you know, especially um, going back to education, um, a lot of the people in the barracks at the moment, a quarter of whom have had COVID, you know, and that just shows... Mm. Um, yeah. how poor conditions are there but a lot of those people are young um and they're at the age of kind of like around the early 20s where you'd be seeking further education well exactly and i think that only just goes to show just how you know related these issues are um the point of this podcast really is to uh, show people how a lot of the themes that they might be familiar with from the news uh, from newspapers from whatever uh, from however they uh, they get the news um, you know, there are students among these populations as well. Um, and um, as we'll discuss later with IAS, uh, from, uh, live from Berlin, um, that it really is refugee students who face a set of challenges um, of particular severity and importance. Thank you so much to Tiggs there, who spoke a little bit with me about the Napier Barracks scandal. It's estimated that there are around 400 residents of the Napier Barracks in Folkestone and Kent, um, and hundreds of people are currently being held in what many of them describe as prison-like conditions, uh, even though a lot of them, having recently arrived to the UK in search of safety, are victims of torture, genocide, war, trafficking, modern slavery. One person currently staying at the Napier, res- at the Napier barracks um, had the following quote, Prisoners in prisons know how long they will be detained. We do not. Prisoners know why they're being detained. We do not. We have come to seek protection. Some insight there into events currently unfolding in the United Kingdom. I also spoke to E.S. Adi live from Berlin. Now, as I, as I mentioned earlier, E.S. works for a refugee organisation uh, called Refugee Voices Berlin, who provide tours for tourists in Berlin, uh, in normal non-pandemic times at least, um, of the city as it is for refugees in Berlin. Uh, of course, as many of you will know, uh, in 2015, uh, Germany uh, introduced a migration refugee policy which, uh, which welcomed hundreds and thousands, uh, millions in fact, of refugees to Germany. Now, with ES, I'm going to speak a little bit about his experiences working and living and studying between different European countries and talk a little bit about that so-called welcome culture that I mentioned earlier. Yes. You work for Refugee Voices Berlin, am I right? Yes, uh, I am uh, a volunteer in Refugee Voices Tours. Uh, it's an organization founded, uh, it was founded in 2014. Uh, we are doing tours uh, before, before Corona. We used to do tours every Saturday, a public tour in Berlin to talk about the of course. And for, before you started working for, um, for that organization, where, uh, what were you doing? You, you were a student, right? Yes, I was uh, a student, uh, a medical student in Syria. And in 2016, I left because of the military service in Syria. Uh, I escaped from Syria. I went to, uh, you want the, the long version? I went to, to Lebanon and then I was able to, to get a chance to, to participate in a workshop in Europe. So I came to, to France and then I applied for asylum in Germany. 
and started step by step like finding my path here in in berlin learning the language and then trying to to, to continue my education and find a job and the initiative was kind of activism or voluntary work for for me on the side of course and you mentioned that being a medical student um in europe how how has that experience been for you well uh it was it was it was kind of exhausting in the years of uh, after 2011 because uh because of my medical study i was involved also in voluntary activities with the red crescent the equivalent of red cross in syria so we had uh, many medical points or stations where we we were hoping to 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 rescue people because of the fights that were happening between the government and the uh, uh, protesters and the, uh, the people on the streets and of course because of the political and security situation in Syria it was not that easy thing and of course also we didn't have the equipments and the the the, the backup that we needed as as uh, first aiders or rescuers or even doctors to treat the the the, the injuries in, in on those medical points. So it was a tough experience. And then when I came to Germany, I found it almost impossible to continue the same because I didn't graduate in Syria. So it was almost impossible to to continue the same field of study in Germany. Mm. In what in what way was it impossible to to continue the same field of study? Because the structure of the, uh, the structure of the studies in Syria is a bit different than how how, how it goes in, in in medical schools in Germany, and the thing is that your best chance is because I studied six years in Syria. I I had only the graduation exam, but still, in Germany, in German universities, in in medical German universities, they will not equalize. They will not recognize your studies like the best chance is to recognize the first three years of studies which is called here in germany physicium or the theoretical part of the studies mm-hmm. but german german uh, 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 hospitals or university hospitals they will not recognize any practical training you did outside of germany or outside of eu sorry not because maybe in the mm-hmm. eu they were recognized but because it's in syria they will not consider it as bad. Whilst I'm sure you find your new job, um, you know, fulfilling and um, interesting, is any part of you sad about the fact that perhaps what you would have once wanted to do hasn't been easy to do? Well, yeah, because uh, I, when I finished the language courses in, in, in Germany, I wanted directly con- to, to, to continue my studies in university. But the thing is, uh, I was kind of forced to, to find a full-time job because I wanted to find an apartment. Mm. And uh, my wife came from Syria, so it was, it was like, especially in Berlin, it was almost impossible to, or if you are a student with a student loan, it will be, it, it will be very, very difficult to, to find an apartment. That's why I went to, to, to work as a full-time in a customer service company, like uh, on a call, in a call center, just to find a job that with the minimum wage, 
and to be able to rent an apartment. And then after that, I was like, it's not the job that I dreamt of. It's it's just a temporary job. So it was. A of course. And um, one thing also um, I wanted to ask you about was there's a perception uh, for many in the UK that Germany has had a migrant policy um, which uh, has been very powerful and successful. Um, how, how, how do you see Germany's migration policy in the last few years? Well, that's, that's actually the reason why I, I came. I prefer to, to, to come and apply for asylum here, even with the chance that I could be rejected and sent by, back to France. Because in 2016, when I came and applied for asylum here, it was to me clear that Germany has a very they they were they were also they were already starting this welcome culture and also they had a very well constructed path for refugees or for newcomers. So you come, you take the benefits from the government, they will find a shelter for you, even if it's not like the five star shelter, but still. So you have a place to live, you have money to 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 for your minimum requirements, you can eat and drink and find a place to sleep and then they will help you to to learn the language and then find your path either if you want to 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 walk but the thing is uh i after i spent now four four five years in, in this welcome culture is fading unfortunately it's fading a bit by bit it's being faded because of the uh, political arguments and political debate about the refugees so this welcome culture is not anymore in the in the same in the same intense that it was in 2016. Mm -hmm. Now with uh, with the talks about sending refugees back to safe zones in Syria, with uh, with not dealing with all refugees as same like for us Syrian, there is a full refugee status and a subsidiary protection, which is a degree less of uh, uh, an asylum. So there are differences with the duration, with your rights, if you are able to bring your family or not, if you are able to change the place you are living, move from Berlin to Hamburg, for example. So those differences <coughs> are making it harder for refugees. That's on the, on the welcome culture thing. And also this constructed path that I had in mind in 2016, I found that it always, stopped by some kind of bureaucracies that mm. for example as a student i wanted to continue my studies in, in in university and the thing is when you are unemployed as a refugee learning the language that the the uh, the body or the the, uh, the 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 part of the government that's responsible for you it's called the job center and their mission is to find a job for you mm. so after you you learn the language, they wanted to find a job for you. That's that's where they are heading. They are heading toward, okay, you should find a job. You learned a certain level of German language. It, most of the times, it's not that perfect level. So it's not the perfect, it's not the level of studying in the university. It's the level just to talk in the street. So, okay, that's it for them. Most of the times those employees, okay, now, now you learn German go find a job at McDonald's or as a driver or what, what, whatever kind of basic jobs. And if you tell them, I want to learn 
do more courses in German, I want to study, then a lot of times they are like not very well understanding of that. Mm. It's not our mission to, to support you to study. That's another uh, uh, department, which is the student loan department. We are not mm. connected at all. So they will just sometimes, I, I know some cases where they were like very angry because now you learn the language, you don't want to go work, you want to go study. So they will cut the funds on you and tell you, you go apply for the student loan or you mm. go apply for the university. And there is a gaps here, like sometimes it's... Of course. Do you think it's fair to say, from, 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 from what you're telling me, do you think it's fair to say that there are many ways in which being a refugee student is harder than many other... Yes, I think it's harder. I think uh, that the things that Germany provide for refugees to become students as like the law is very good. Like we are, we as refugees have the benefit of having a student loan, just like the Germans, mm. just like uh, 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 the, uh, the citizen here. We can apply for a student loan. We can get in German universities. We are, th those are very good things, you know. But mm. on the same time, as a refugee, you don't have the, the protection net around you. You don't have a family here most of the times. Or if you have a family, they are refugees just like you, so they don't, don't have house or money or, or something to support you and being a student that means you are in the process of applying to student loans which is a lot of paperwork which is totally new for us even if you learn the language even like if you ask germans themselves it's hard when it comes to to paperwork with the government it's very it's written in very different language than the language you learn and mm -hmm. it's you have to know that the, the details in it. And sometimes a lot of paperwork requests from a refugee to get papers from the home country, which is you, you fled from it. So it's, it's actually very mm. difficult to bring some, some documents or, uh, or certificates from Syria because you already left Syria. It's already, a lot of refugees left their places. Would you say that perhaps behind the welcome culture, um, behind the support systems, behind the structures that are there for you, there is, you know, there, there are lots of moments of lack of understanding. Yeah, I think, I think that the, the number of refugees that came in 2016 made it like, it was, a, it's, it, in my opinion, it's not something new to Germany, the world refugee and the newcomers, but still in the, in this, number that came in 2015-16 it was a bit as a surprise for them the welcome culture like on the on the on the on the everyday life level for me in berlin i still feel the welcome culture until today but on the mm -hmm. on the paperwork and the official level it's it's not there anymore because it was been i think it's was been exhausting and very uh, uh complicated for employers to understand how our paper are different than any other like European citizen paper in, when applying to university or our, our documents and how it's treated. It's like all those differences, all this bureaucracy in Germany and because they love, they just love paperwork in, in Germany, like in universities, with student loan, with the job center. So, and this very well, 
very 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 strong relationship with paperwork uh, mm. it's very different from the syrian culture so we we can sometimes describe to the employer that it's like that or it's like this but then they need something verified a, a document that's signed from syria which is it's it's strange for them that we are not able to to go to syrian embassy for example and bring mm. whatever document they want so and we can't and that's the thing those those people working in the student loan or the universities they are not very well uh, uh, informed about how the situation is in syria and with the mm. syrian with the syrian government and with the syrian documents and all of that so i think here here, here is the problem here is the com the complication that comes to syrian students but on the, on the everyday life level like with the people and with the people with the students in the university and with the people in the street i still feel that will come culture and I think maybe that speaks to the fact that you know large swathes of European populations are uh, pro-refugees, refugees welcome, but that there are systematic issues uh, with regards to even the continent's most successful and you could say most compassionate refugee policies, um, which uh, present serious problems to refugees who live in those countries and in particular, of course, refugee students. Thank you so much to ES for speaking to us earlier. And that brings us really to the end of this episode, Living Beyond Borders. Um, I hope it was interesting and I hope that it told you more about where things are going in the UK with regards to the conditions and environments in which refugees live. Um, some interesting comparisons there with the refugee camp system uh, in, other, in other parts of Europe. Um, and I hope that our discussion with ES about Berlin and Germany also offered interesting comparisons with systems here in the United Kingdom. I hope that everyone's well and we look forward to welcoming you back to the next episode.